Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. That hymn reminds us of the vast difference, the transcendence of our great God and Savior Jesus and us lowly here on earth. It calls us to confess our sins. So we turn to John 5. God's word calls us Jesus' own words here from verse 22 on. The Father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Thus far the reading of God's word. This morning, the theme is the resurrection at the great last day, and so I thought these words would be good to remember. Just briefly, there's much in this passage that we forget. We forget that one day we will be dead in the grave, and soon. We forget that we will be like Lazarus, called out by Jesus, and we will come out. We forget that judgment will follow that resurrection, where Jesus has all authority. We forget the great difference between mankind that will be then, between the sheep and the goats, between those who hear Jesus' word now, those who believe in him now, and those who did not. These are just some of the things we forget, some of the things that are wrapped up in the New Testament confession. Jesus Christ is... chapter 5. Throughout the service here, I've pretty much walked straight through the order of the uh, text that is in the Messiah, the last portion. And it ends with this uh, passage, worthy is the lamb, that we see in verses 12 and uh, 14 of Revelation 5. I wanted to read the whole chapter though for context. Let's begin at verse 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us this word. It is precious to us. Uh, We so often forget how precious, how strong and powerful it is. Lord, let us take it up uh, with reverence and with eagerness uh, that our ears may hear, that our heart may uh, willingly accept your truth uh, and what it calls forth uh, from us. We pray all this uh, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Revelation 5, hear God's infallible word. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, 
Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Boy, I always need a minute after reading Revelation 5. Sorry. We're looking at the Messiah. We have been for the last three weeks. And it's funny, I mentioned this a bit of this last time. At performances of the Messiah, there are always a few who leave right after the Hallelujah Chorus. These days, the way we saw it performed, uh, it's kind of natural. They, they perform that. There's kind of a sing-along. Everybody's singing. And then there's, there's a great deal of applause. People can't help but applause after the Hallelujah Chorus, even if it's not done yet. And, and in our case, they even had an intermission at that point. And I saw all kinds of people leave and not come back. I couldn't believe it. People think that that's it. And then that there's nothing more that's interesting. Not so. We're going to look at the Messiah now from right after the Hallelujah Chorus to the end. The Hallelujah Chorus, of course, is the most famous, the most sensational piece in that work, but it is not the climax of the piece, I would uh, adamantly insist. We're very tempted to think so for several reasons. If you remember from the last time, the Hallelujah Chorus represents that point at the end of history when the nations have been discipled. And Christ is fully king of kings. All earthly kingdoms made his. 
That's kind of the moment that the Hallelujah Chorus encapsulates. And man, are we looking forward to that, right? That's the moment we long for with all of our hearts. And so even in our worldview, we are tempted to think that that moment is the climax of history. You know, we think of it kind of like this. I can rest in peace now that I know that America is a Christian nation again, for example. But no, there is something far more important even than that coming. And that's what we're going to look at today. What could be more important? We kind of wonder because we're so grieved by the way the nations are going. Well, there's a great deal in Scripture to tell us. So let's start first with Job 19. And I've got in the uh, sermon outline this time just some of the major quotes from the Messiah. I know that my Redeemer liveth, this great um, soprano solo right after the Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, So we're quoting here from Job 19, which we read, and we remember the story of Job. Job's situation was dire, right? His friends came not to comfort him, but to accuse him. After all that he goes through, losing his family, his possessions, his health, there he sits, and then his, his friends come and accuse him instead of comforting him. Job's situation was dire. And this is perfect for Advent, because remember, the people walking in darkness, right? The catechism reminds us of our misery, the state of our misery. I was reading yesterday a, a newspaper article about uh, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, uh, how that was put together. It's about Charles Schultz and all. And um, one thing it pointed out was how that Christmas special is very unique in starting out with Charlie Brown really depressed and feeling like a loser. And all these bad things are happening to him, right? That's very unique among Christmas specials. You don't really see that much. It wasn't all glitter and jingle bells and reindeer. And in doing that, Charles Schultz touched a nerve. We really are in a state of misery like Job was in. And, and that, that, that struck a bell with uh, American believers, the article pointed out. I saw recently, too, in a headline this past week that some pop singer, I don't remember her name, she got a divorce after just five years of marriage, very recently. And her quote was, the glitter was gone. The glitter was gone. And uh, these things hopefully will all come together here in a moment. I did a wedding this, this, a few weeks ago, and I pointed this out. It isn't popular, but we should say, at weddings... That yes, weddings are great, it's a great institution of marriage, we should pursue it, but it's going to be hard and challenging and convicting, and your spouse is going to hurt you. But the gospel restores brokenness in marriage too. But if you go into, the, into it thinking that it's all a bed of roses, you're going to bolt at the first sign of trouble. The glitter's gone five years later. But when we see something like the Charlie Brown special, we realize how depressed and how bad things can get. We realize our situation. And then we know we need a savior. It's the same in how we think of the Christian life. Uh, Last week I spoke quite passionately about Christ discipling the nations. And it's true. But if we only speak triumphantly about the inexorable progress of the gospel, what do we do with the setbacks? What do we do with cancer and rebellious children and friends leaving us 
in conflict at home or in the neighborhood or at church. It's good to keep the big picture in mind that the nations will be discipled, but we also need to remember God may give us a long, hard row to hoe for a while. And that's what Job had. But his hope here in these, uh, this, these verses was clear. He had a Redeemer who lives. And at the end, that Savior of his would prevail on the earth. He would stand at the last day on the earth and redeem him. Vindicate him, really, is what he's talking about. Job did not know that he was speaking of Jesus uh, as that, that person, but he was. Job did know that God would vindicate him somehow, and that it would involve the resurrection of his own body. If you read that closely, you see that. He knows his flesh is going to be destroyed, but at the last day, with his own flesh and his own eyes, he's going to see his Savior. That's resurrection, and they say the Old Testament doesn't assert the resurrection of the dead. That's uh, a great deal of folly, I think. So Job knows that his Redeemer lives and that there's this resurrection coming. The way the Messiah uh, uh, lyrics put it, I forgot to look if this is in the King James or not, but he says, though worms destroy this body, yet I know that in my flesh I shall see God. So that moves us into the next section, we shall be changed, the 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Job knew worms would destroy his body, but he knew, too, he believed in a bodily resurrection. And think again of Job's bodily condition as he's writing this. Don't forget that he's sitting in the dirt with boils all over his body, scraping them with broken bits of pottery to get some relief. His body is in dire shape, right? And Job is basically saying, Look, I'm sitting here in the gutter. God can restore me from this if he wants me, if he wants to. And then Job thinks a bit further even. You know, God can even restore me from death and from the decomposition of my body if he wants to. And he will. That's what Job's thinking as he's sitting there at one of the lowest points you can be physically health-wise. That's where he makes that assertion that he will be raised. It made me think this morning, uh, again, of the story of Jonah. It's the same with Jonah, who's in the belly of the, the fish, right? At the lowest possible point you can be, under the water, in a fish. And, and at that point, he proclaims that salvation is of the Lord, that he'll praise God in his temple again. He's looking forward to resurrection of a sort. Well, that's Job's hope. And it's, I think it's one of the most compelling moments of the Messiah, when a, a beautiful woman stands up in her beautiful gown and her singing voice is in the top 1% in the world and you've got all this beauty around and then she sings Job's words and though worms destroy this body. That, it's astounding. Surrounded by beauty, Handel uses the word of God to remind everybody who's there listening you see all this glory, all this pomp, all this majesty, the best humanity can accomplish culturally and musically. Worms will destroy it all. It reminds me a bit of the, uh, the Fellowship of the Ring. Take you to Tolkien for a second. They're, they're walking through the mines of Moria, right? And if you see it in the movie, the movie tries to portray this. It does a decent job. Uh, the, all the majestic feasting halls of the dwarves that Gimli brings to their mind and the songs 
but all we see now are dark catacombs and skeletons. That's how cultures and civilizations go. They rise and fall at God's command. Before the resurrection at the end, for most of us, will come the end of death. It's a little morbid, but the Puritans would put it this way. Think of a day 200 years from now when your body is in the grave. What can you do today to influence life on earth when you're under it? And it isn't a rhetorical question. The answer isn't nothing. You can't do anything. No, you can pray. You can mentor disciples. You raise children. These things make a difference. Uh, I've been playing the piano more recently, so I've, I think piano illustrations. You know, there are piano players today who were taught by somebody, who were taught by somebody, who were taught by somebody, who was taught by Beethoven. And they, they know that lineage. And in the same way, there are, and I'm going to put the, it's kind of a weird way to put it, but hang with me. In the same way, there are spiritual geniuses among us who have been discipled well in the faith by somebody, by Martin Lloyd-Jones, by somebody else, by Spurgeon, going back. There are people like that. And you won't always recognize them by their flashy ministries or blogs. That's not the point. The point is that your labor is not in vain. You are passing on the faith in your faithful labor. But that labor will come to an end. Jesus says, work while it is day, for night is coming. Worms will destroy this body too. But in our flesh we shall see God. So Paul writes beautifully of this in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Let's let's go there a moment. Uh, We'll look at uh, that chapter a bit here. Verse 20 first. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, we know Christ will raise us because Christ is already raised and he is the first fruits of our resurrection to come. That's the point. The whole first fruits idea there is look, if you see this happening, then you know that's going to happen next. And it's kind of a harvest image where Israel was commanded to take literally the first of the harvest and give it to God. It's something we don't remember very often. Um, It's something to keep in mind in the tithe principle, actually. But we'll talk about that some other time. But you take the first and you give it to God. And Jesus uses that harvest image when he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it can't bear fruit. With that short saying, he tells us three things. First, he tells the disciples that he's going to die. That was new to them. They needed to to be prepared for that. Second, he tells them he's going to come back to life. As surely as seed grows into a crop. Right? And third, he tells them that his death and resurrection is going to bear fruit. It's going to do something. Not just that I'll be back with you. But that's going to do something. So... It it continues to astound me how much Jesus packs into, like, a a 12-word sentence. It's just amazing. So this is one example. So you have new spiritual life today, and, and you will be raised at the last day because Jesus died and rose. And that because is so important. Without Christ's death and resurrection, none of that happens. And you and I are just dead and lost. 
That's part of what these scriptures are asserting. And again, there's something new here beyond the harvest picture, right? The, the, The later harvest, our resurrection, happens because the first harvest happened. That's not how it works in farming, right? My my brother is going to harvest his soybeans. Well, he did back in October. And then a month later, he goes out and he brings in the corn. And the corn harvest doesn't depend on the bean harvest so much, right? But with us, our resurrection is caused by and absolutely depends on Christ's resurrection life. Uh, Kids, try another picture if you're not farmers. Kids, try uh, the Christmas tree. Some of you have just gotten Christmas trees or recently, and and there they are in your house. If you see a tree in your house, you can be pretty sure that there's going to be presents under it to open on Christmas, right? And that's part of the point, right? The tree there tells you that it's your parents' intent. Your parents want you to celebrate Christmas. They're going to give you presents, right? That's kind of the same idea of the first fruits. If the tree's there... Something else good is coming later. In the same way, when we read of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, we can tell that it's our Father in heaven's will to do good to us. There's a lot packed into that first fruits idea, but let's move on. Verse 21 in Revelation, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15. Because Adam and Eve sinned, every man dies. And because Jesus was raised, every man will rise. And there he's simply talking about the great resurrection to uh, life or to condemnation. Every creature who's ever lived, every human will rise. So we're talking about the great resurrection at the last day. Revelation 20 mentions it. Sea and the, the sea and Hades will give up their dead. And everyone who's ever lived, small or great, will stand before God. Uh, scoffers say that that's impossible. The, the medically minded among us say, look, there aren't enough molecules and atoms around to make up all the bodies of everyone who's ever lived. That, and so they say, no way. I, as I thought of that, I thought about uh, Charles Dickens and his Christmas carol, uh, where at the end of that, he's confused because all three spirits visited him in one night. And, and Marley had said, it's going to be one after another, three separate nights. Uh, and Dickens uh, has a Scrooge. He says, the spirit did it all in one night. Of course, the spirit can do whatever he likes. That, that's something to keep in mind when, when you have these um, physical objections. Well, God can rearrange and add to physicality however he wants to. First Corinthians 15 talks about that at length, the spiritual body and so on. Verse 51 gets really clear about what will happen. The people living at the return of Christ will not die. They'll be changed, just like the dead will now have a resurrection body that's new and somehow different. Uh, Side note here, I think that one mistake that that some post-millennial thought makes is, is to assert the sameness of the resurrected body, the sameness of the new earth. They overemphasize that it's going to be a physical body, which it is, by saying that it's going to be the same body. And I disagree with that. We're going to be changed in some way. I think we'll still be recognizable to each other, but something will be different, better, glorified. It reminds me of the Field of Dreams quote, right? Somebody comes out and says, is this heaven? And the guy responds, no, it's Iowa. Right? The joke is they're pretty much the same thing. 
right? But they're not. Uh, Iowa right now is glorious. I, I loved the cornfields, but it's fallen. It's subjected to futility, and it's going to be restored. The resurrection is going to change things. Iowa, any plot of land that we homestead is subject to the curse right now. But the resurrection is going to change things, and that's an understatement. How, we can only imagine. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, the scripture says. But everything subject to decay, to corruption, will put on an incorruptible state. Death will be no more. Death is strong now because of sin and guilt, but Jesus has overcome that. So death will go away, the last enemy. So uh, we turn next then to, Re to Romans 8, if God be for us. And this takes us too to the throne room of God in Revelation 5. Uh, so consider, Christ has uh, returned to earth and he takes all his people with him. Uh, now there we stand in that throne room. He's called all the dead from their graves, taken all the billions of us there, and the books are opened and every mouth is stopped. And this is the Romans 8 moment. This is one of those key things that happens after the nations are discipled after Jesus returns. The unbelieving dread condemnation, and they're going to get condemnation. But for the people Christ chose to redeem, if God be for us, who can be against us? There's something I noticed interesting as I studied all of this. In Revelation 10, excuse me, 20, in Revelation 20, verse 10, uh, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And then three verses later, verse 13, we see all of, uh, all of mankind standing before the throne of judgment. So the accuser, notice, is already thrown down at this point. When, when, the, when people are judged, the books are opened, Satan is gone. He's in the lake of fire. He's not standing there accusing us anymore. It's God who justifies. Where's the one who condemns? That's Romans 8. And the theologians call that final justification. There's a sense in which we're justified now, but there's also a sense in which at the last day, God will declare us justified. And again, that's not just some abstract theological assertion. Remember, remember Job. Go back to Job. It's all about his accusers. Right? The point of, in Job is that he would be vindicated by Jesus against his accusing friends. We will be vindicated by Christ against the devil, against our own guilty conscience, whatever accusations may come. And think of that, I have a bit of imagination here. You may stand before the throne of God at that last day, right next to someone that you wronged terribly in this life. You may stand before the throne of God, right next to someone that wronged you terribly in this life. And God is going to sort it all out. And the grace of Christ will, be, will, be, will prevail at its strongest right then. Right when we are all most aware of our sin and guilt, confronted with it face to face with God and our accusers, right then God will wipe away all the debt, pointing to the Lamb who was slain for our sakes. if God be for us. And that's why in Revelation 5, we're drawn back to the cross. 
on the last day of judgment, all creation will look at a lamb and see it had been slain. Revelation 5.12. All creation will look back to Good Friday and realize how good that day truly was. Without that cross, no one would be worthy to restore creation. But at the cross, Jesus puts away the sin and death of the old Adam. The next day, he rests on the old Sabbath. And on the next day, the eighth day, a, first new, a new first day of the week, God begins a new creation with the resurrection of Christ. He speaks the world into existence by the word, Jesus, in, on Genesis 1.1, and he redeems the world by the same word, Jesus, on resurrection morning. And, and the context of these verses in Revelation 5 is so very important. You know, John begins seeing a scroll in God's hand, but no one can open it. And, and I put before you that that's the precise situation we still find ourselves in. It's the same one John was in, right? The beginning of Revelation, we learn that John is exiled and imprisoned for his faith. John's been given promises that God will set all things right. But there's still so much sin and death and misery to conquer. How can it ever happen? Only if someone opens God's scroll. Who can advance the agenda of the kingdom of God on earth? I would put to you that it is not you and it is not me. Only the Lamb of God. And if he takes the scroll, if he sends forth his spirit to us, if he moves hearts, and he has then he accomplishes much through us. But that means that only he is worthy of praise and power and riches and glory. As the old hymn puts it, we are only channels of his power and mercy and grace. So a closing point here before we quit. With all that we're called to do in this life, remember that your ultimate purpose is worship. That's where the Messiah ends, with direct worship. All of creation saying, worthy is the Lamb. But our, our purpose, the chief end of man, is to glorify God, to praise him. And it's true that we can glorify God in everything we do. Scripture says that too. But there's a direct form of praise here I'm talking about that we must not neglect. This is why we sing so much when we gather as a church. This is why we pray and take time to read and study God's word. This is why we focus some on the form of our worship. Our highest desire is to please God and to praise God rightly. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Last week we started with the suffering servant becoming the conquering king. Here at the end of history, at the consummation of the kingdom, we see the conquering king of the nations becomes the worshipped Lamb. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, your Son, our Lord Jesus, is worthy to receive all authority, the name above every name. Let our every thought be captive to Christ, so that all of our living may point to him. Lord, forgive us our pride when we forget the day of our death. Forgive us our lack of trust in your power to raise the dead. When we think of how things will be in the restored creation, Lord, keep us from speculation that leads to contention. Keep us thinking that you are a good, kind Father who knows how to give good gifts to your children. And when you awaken us on that Christmas morning,
to new and unexpected gifts under the tree at the foot of the cross, we will understand better by your grace. And all of our doubting and distrust and disagreement, we will shed like so much shabby clothing. And you will clothe us with immortal joy. Lord, let the thought of these things change how we use this day, this Sabbath. We pray in the name of Jesus. will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. I want to focus on that phrase, he will swallow up death forever today. God brings about in history many acts of poetic justice or irony. One of them is that swallowing up of death at the last day. Sin devours us. It eats away at our soul. Sometimes we do this to ourselves. The indulgence of the flesh in pornography or gluttony, the weed of bitterness or resentment, they eat away at our souls. Sometimes others do this to us. The beasts in Revelation persecute Christ's people. It's literally spoken of as devouring Christ's people. Totalitarian governments like Iran and North Korea and China today devour God's people. The woman on the beast in Revelation 17 is said to be literally drunk with the blood of the saints. There are times we are devoured by sin and by evil. But Jesus at the cross devours too. Jesus drinks the cup of the wrath of God fully. Jesus is, to put it a weird way, Jesus' stomach was big enough, because he is God, to consume all of it. And so we sit at this table, week by week, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. We are proclaiming the devouring of death by looking to the death of Jesus and then by eating and drinking. An irony God has given to us. When we eat, food is broken down by our bodies and delivered to every cell as every cell needs it. There is also a way we ingest Jesus, so to speak. We consume the word of God, and it's sweeter than honey, the Bible tells us. The fellowship of the saints, like we had last night, is another way of taking in Jesus through his body, the church. And it is a real treat right? And at this table, we consume the word of God. Not that the bread and wine are physically Jesus, but by the Spirit, there is a real nutritious union of Christ and Christian, of food and body. And when we ingest Jesus, the Spirit brings him to every part of our life as we need it, to every part of his world. So come, for all things are now ready. 
Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.